Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. On July 30th, 1979, an English art teacher named Alistair Boyd visited Loch Ness with his wife, Sue. As they took in the loch's placid waters, Alistair noticed something strange. What seemed to be a huge animal, over 20 feet long, came heaving out of the water. As this mysterious creature rolled on the loch's surface, Boyd became convinced that he was seeing the legendary Loch Ness monster. In the ensuing years, Boyd dedicated all the time he could spare towards researching this legendary creature that he believed was all too real. In 1991, Boyd prepared a project with writer and fellow Loch Ness Monster enthusiast David Martin to prove the monster's existence. As they compiled their research, they came across startling information that shook their belief to its very core. Something that cast the nearly 60-year history of evidence in the Loch Ness Monster's existence into doubt. Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries. I'm your host, Richard. And I'm Molly. In life, there's so much we don't know. But in this podcast, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every week, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. This week's episode is part two of our investigation into the legendary Loch Ness Monster, also known as Nessie. Last week, we took a deep dive, excuse the pun, into Nessie's history. From the first mention of a monster in the River Ness in a 7th century book to scientific expeditions conducted with sophisticated sonar technologies in the early 1990s. This week, we'll be taking a closer look at the evidence that has been used to argue in favor of or against Nessie's existence. We'll examine theories on what people are actually seeing when they look into Loch Ness. Is it an optical illusion? a natural phenomenon, an unusually large fish or otter, or is Nessie truly a monster? Lastly, we'll try to conclude whether there is a reclusive beast lurking in Loch Ness, or if it's just a product of overenthusiastic tourists and elaborate hoaxes. 
If you like the show, you can subscribe on your favorite podcast directory. A new episode comes out every Thursday. While you're there, we'd greatly appreciate a five-star review. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast, on Twitter at Parcast Network, and at Parcast.com. Interest in the Loch Ness Monster surged in the late 1950s after Constance White's book, More Than a Legend, was published in 1957. This book was a collection of people's eyewitness accounts and a few photographs and film stills that had been taken since 1933. It offered the tantalizing possibility that Nessie could really exist. After all, how could this many people be wrong? This increased interest in the Loch Ness Monster attracted the attention of natural scientist and avowed Nessie believer Maurice Burton. He became interested in the Loch Ness Monster during the original 1933 outburst of sightings and was even wrongly quoted in the press, asserting that it was actually a walrus. For 27 years, Burton was a steadfast believer in the Loch Ness Monster. During a television broadcast in September 1951, he supported a theory that the Loch Ness Monster was a giant eel and published a paper with evidence supporting this theory in August 1953. After reading more than a legend, Burton became convinced of the popular theory that Nessie was a plesiosaur, a species of long-necked aquatic reptiles that were thought to have gone extinct 66 million years ago. But by 1960, he was less sure that any of these theories were valid. In 1959, there was a record amount of publicity about the Loch Ness Monster, including two separate television programs. Burton was concerned that too many assumptions about Nessie were being made and wanted to come to a solid conclusion about what could be assumed about this mysterious creature. He published an article in the September 22, 1960 edition of The New Scientist with his findings. Burton wasn't certain what the Loch Ness Monster was, but still felt there was some sort of large animal in Loch Ness. He studied all the eyewitness accounts he could find in order to construct a hypothetical model of Nessie, then collected photographs and studies of the behavior of aquatic mammals to test against his hypothetical model. With a clear picture of what the creature should look like in his mind, Burton then traveled to Loch Ness with some colleagues in 1960 for eight days of continuous observation. Unfortunately, they didn't see anything. Although Burton had hoped to make first-hand observations himself, the data he collected allowed him to come to a few conclusions. After comparing eyewitness accounts to behaviors of recorded aquatic animals, he was able to conclude that at least 75% of the eyewitness sightings didn't conform with the behaviors of any aquatic animal he had studied. Something that especially concerned him was that almost nobody saw the monster come to the surface to breathe. While some aquatic reptiles have a rudimentary ability to breathe underwater, they still need air as their primary oxygen source. Many eyewitness reports describe the monster thrashing on the surface and creating a large wake for prolonged periods of time. While some animals are known to exhibit this kind of behavior, 
it's usually in short bursts of less than a minute. Many Nessie sightings reported thrashing that lasted over 40 minutes. Burton was also skeptical of reports that the Loch Ness Monster could churn up a V-shaped foaming wake that preceded the appearance of its hump. This sort of disturbance is incredibly unlikely to be produced by an animal that lives in the water, since aquatic animals are adapted to create as little of a disturbance as possible when they surface. With eyewitness accounts proving unreliable, Burton referenced what small video evidence was available. Films taken by Sir Edward Mountain in 1934 and Malcolm Irving in 1936 were inconclusive, and the objects they filmed were unidentifiable. Film taken in 1960 by a man named Tim Dinsdale did show an object clearly moving across Loch Ness. Although Dinsdale was convinced he had filmed the Loch Ness Monster, Burton wasn't so sure. Dinsdale estimated that the object was around 10 feet long and moving at approximately 7 miles per hour, which happens to be the speed and size of most of the boats on Loch Ness. The object also followed the same course often taken by boats on that part of the loch. If it was an aquatic animal, it was one that had never been observed before. Burton also believed that many other Nessie sightings were actually otters. Although the largest recorded otter at the time was 5 feet 6 inches, there was so little data available that Burton argued there could very well be much bigger otters living in Loch Ness. Otter behavior also lines up with people's description of Nessie. Otters have a tendency to extend their necks to a surprisingly long length. Burton supposed that it was entirely possible that people who thought they saw Nessie splashing into the loch from undergrowth on the shore were simply seeing a large otter splashing into the water. Burton also pointed out that many optical illusions, such as wave action, windrows, and shadows, could account for a few of the sightings. But tricks of the mind can't explain a creature up to 60 feet in length creating a turbulent wash as it charges across the loch. A popular argument in favor of Nessie's existence is that similar creatures have been spotted at other Scottish lochs, Western Canada, Iceland, and Norway. The descriptions are all startlingly similar. A long-necked creature with large eyes whose humps stick out of the water as it splashes. With so many sightings in so many different places, how could this creature be a myth? Is it possible it's just something that has never been correctly identified? Unfortunately, there is an explanation for what could be connecting all these places together. And it is most likely not an unidentified aquatic animal. Norwegian scientist Elizabeth Shelsvik conducted two studies on Nessie's Norwegian counterpart and discovered that what most people believe to be the monster was actually large mats of rotting vegetation propelled to the water's surface by putrefaction-generated gas. While this explanation can't account for every lake monster sighting across the planet, it does offer a likely possibility. In the summer of 1960, when Burton was conducting his study, a group studying Loch Ness observed an object fitting the description of what Burton believed was rotting vegetation for over two hours. However, they didn't go out to investigate it. Burton still believed it was entirely possible that Nessie existed, 
He felt there were enough credible sightings that couldn't be explained away with conventional science. Notably, the piece of evidence that had him most convinced that Nessie did exist was the photograph by the London surgeon showing a long neck protruding from the surface of the water. If you recall from last week, the surgeon's photograph is perhaps the most famous evidence of Nessie's existence. Taken in 1934 by a respected London doctor named Kenneth Wilson, the picture presents a clear image of Nessie's iconic long neck and dinosaur-like head rising out of Loch Ness. It's responsible for restoring credible interest in the Loch Ness Monster after Marmaduke Wetherell's disastrous expedition in 1933, when the monster footprints he thought he found turned out to have been made with a preserved hippopotamus foot. For the next 60 years, Dr. Wilson's photo was the primary piece of evidence used to combat Loch Ness Monster skeptics. Despite what seemed to be overwhelming evidence and analysis showing there wasn't anything out of the ordinary living in Loch Ness, this single photograph was powerful enough to convince a respected scientist of Maurice Burton's caliber that it was entirely possible something defying description lived in the depths of Loch Ness. For another 30 years after Maurice Burton's article, the surgeon's photograph was held up as the shining beacon of hope that Nessie was real. No matter how many studies, investigations, or skeptics argued against it, believers could always point to the surgeon's photograph and say, explain that. And in 1994, someone did. Our story will continue in a moment after a brief message. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use Gift Mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Now the story continues. In 1991, Alistair Boyd and David Martin, who had been searching for materials to help prove Nessie's existence, ended up finding evidence that pointed otherwise. It began when Martin showed Boyd a letter he had uncovered in his research written by Ian Wetherill, the son of Marmaduke Wetherill, printed on December 7, 1975 in the Sunday edition of the English newspaper The Daily Telegraph, the letter claimed Marmaduke Wetherall had once fabricated a photograph of the Loch Ness Monster in a plot to exact revenge on the Daily Telegraph 
for humiliating him after the hippo tracks incident in 1933. Through his description of the picture, it was clear that Ian Wetherill was referring to the surgeon's photograph, the most famous evidence of the Loch Ness Monster. In the letter, Ian Wetherill claimed his father had recruited Ian, Ian's stepbrother Christian Sperling, and a man named Maurice Chambers to help him create the surgeon's photograph. The mention of Maurice Chambers set off alarm bells. Boyd and Martin recalled that Kenneth Wilson, the doctor who claimed he took the surgeon's photograph, was with Maurice Chambers the day he took the picture. They also found it odd that Ian Wetherill mentioned the photo had Loch Ness's shoreline in the background. While the original version of the photograph shows enough of the loch to include the shoreline, this version of it was only published in 1934. The widespread version of the photo is tightly cropped on the creature and doesn't show Loch Ness's shoreline. Boyd concluded that the only way for Ian Wetherill to know this detail was for him to have a very long memory of the original printing in 1934, or that he took the picture himself. Despite not wanting to believe the surgeon's photograph was a hoax, Boyd and Martin were convinced Ian Wetherill was telling the truth in his letter, but something unsettled them. Although the Sunday Telegraph is widely circulated, the letter or the follow-up article by O.D. Gallagher had been largely ignored. If Boyd and Martin had discovered a printed admission that the surgeon's photograph was a fake, why had it never gained any serious attention from the Loch Ness Monster community? After doing some digging, Boyd and Martin discovered that both the Loch Ness Investigation Bureau and Maurice Burton, who now worked for the British Museum of Natural History, had copies of the letter. Had these leading authorities on the Loch Ness Monster remained silent in order to protect the supposed authenticity of the surgeon's photograph? As much as it pained them, Boyd and Martin decided they had to reveal the truth about the surgeon's photograph. But before they made any accusations about the photo's authenticity, they had to be absolutely certain it was a fake. Unfortunately, it was difficult to track down the men who Ian Wetherill claimed were responsible for it. Marmaduke Wetherill died in 1939, and Ian had passed away in 1986. Dr. Kenneth Wilson and Maurice Chambers were long gone as well. However, Christian Sperling, Ian Wetherill's stepbrother, was still alive. Boyd and Martin were able to locate him. Although he was 89 years old and in very poor health, Sperling was more than happy to talk to them. Boyd and Martin visited Sperling in 1992 for an extensive interview. Sperling confirmed that the surgeon's photograph was a hoax and also revealed that Marmaduke Wetherell had been behind the Hippotrax hoax as well. According to Sperling, Marmaduke had followed the outbreak of Nessie fever in 1933 with great interest. At 50 years old and far removed from his glory days hunting big game in Africa, Marmaduke saw an opportunity to return to the limelight. He was certain that the Loch Ness Monster existed, and if he could find it, he'd be famous beyond his wildest dreams. Marmaduke offered his services to the Daily Mail, but its editors were skeptical he could deliver. Marmaduke didn't back down, 
claiming he could deliver results in under two weeks if the Daily Mail bankrolled him. Marmaduke's confidence impressed the Daily Mail's editors, and they agreed to fund his expedition. As he prepared for his trip, Marmaduke began to realize how difficult it would be to find the Loch Ness Monster. Although he hoped to be able to actually find the monster, he brought an ashtray made from a hippo's foot just in case. Upon arriving at Loch Ness, Marmaduke quickly realized the immensity of his task. He was certain he'd never find the Loch Ness Monster and was desperate to produce quick results. Two nights after his arrival on December 18, 1933, he slipped out of his hotel in the middle of the night and faked the tracks. Marmaduke Weatherall's phony footprints weren't able to fool the Natural History Museum, who correctly identified them as hippopotamus tracks. The editors at the Daily Mail were furious. Marmaduke claimed he had been duped, but they weren't having it. In order to save face, the paper humiliated Marmaduke in a story highlighting his incompetence. But Weatherell was determined to get the last laugh. He wanted to create a photograph of the Loch Ness Monster convincing enough to fool the Daily Mail. And in order to pull off such an audacious stunt, he would need help. Weatherell's son, Ian, was happy to help, as was his stepson, Christian Sperling. Christian was an expert model maker and wanted to make the head as convincing as possible. He used a book of dinosaurs to find something that resembled people's descriptions of the monster and settled on the plesiosaur. The plesiosaur was a marine reptile with a small head, long neck, large, broad body, short tail, and four elongated flippers. They could vary wildly in length, with adults measuring anywhere between 5 and 50 feet long. Building a full-size plesiosaur model would be impractical and too conspicuous. So, Sperling decided to make a foot-long miniature head and neck out of wood pulp. He attached it to a 14-inch toy submarine so that it could float in the lock. Marmaduke knew that no matter how convincing of a photo he could make with the miniature, the Daily Mail would never believe it was authentic if he brought it to them. To get away with it, he needed a credible accomplice. His friend, Maurice Chambers, suggested R. Kenneth Wilson, a prominent London gynecologist and a former colonel who had fought in World War I. Chambers had plans for a wildfowl shoot near Loch Ness and said that Wilson loved a good prank and would probably be up for it. The plan was set in motion on April 19, 1934. Marmaduke drove up to Loch Ness with Ian in one car, with Chambers and Wilson in another. They found a secluded bay and set the submarine into the water. Ian took four pictures as the model moved across the water. They developed the pictures, and although the model looked suspiciously small when the shoreline was pictured, cropping the photo to have the model surrounded by water made it look much more believable. Dr. Wilson brought the best photo to the Daily Mail, who bought it hook, line, and sinker. Marmaduke planned to go to another newspaper and tell them how he had fooled the Daily Mail. But then, something unexpected happened. The photo became widely accepted as real and began to gain international attention. If Marmaduke came forward now, 
his plan could backfire. If he admitted it was a hoax now, Marmaduke and his accomplices would be regarded as abhorrent villains who misled the public rather than victorious pranksters who pulled one over on a notorious tabloid. Furthermore, Dr. Wilson risked losing his successful medical practice. If it came out that he was party to this hoax, the sterling reputation he had built in London society could suffer. While Marmaduke had to lurk in the shadows, in late summer 1934, Dr. Wilson decided to reveal himself as the one who took the photo. By that point, nobody seemed to suspect the surgeon's photograph's authenticity, and Wilson didn't feel his career was in any danger if things continued on their present course. He thought it would be better to come forward rather than wait for his name to come out in the event that a journalist decided to investigate the photo and question why he'd want to keep his identity secret. People accepted that Wilson had seen and photographed a strange creature, and for decades, very few people seriously questioned the photo's authenticity. But Christian Sperling was ready to admit the truth to Alistair Boyd and David Martin. The secret he had kept for six decades was finally out. Sperling died in November 1993 at the age of 90, only a few weeks after Boyd and Martin interviewed him. On March 11, 1994, almost 60 years after the surgeon's photograph was published, Boyd and Martin published their discovery that the famous surgeon's photograph was actually an elaborate hoax. Their article was picked up by the Associated Press and printed in newspapers everywhere. The Loch Ness Monster community was thrown into an uproar. The revelation that the surgeon's photograph was a hoax threatened to shut down the Loch Ness Monster hunting community. Without the photo to serve as a beacon of credibility, there might not be enough people left to believe in Nessie to mount any serious discovery expeditions. While there had been Loch Ness Monster hoaxes in the past, none ever had the same credibility as the surgeon's photograph. Some hoax photos do seem plausible. P.A. McNabb's 1955 photo of what seems to be a large disturbance in the water and Peter O'Connor's photo from May 1960 of what seems to be Nessie's body, head, and neck are very convincing. However, both of these photos have enough flaws that they were never seriously considered to be authentic. Furthermore, when Maurice Burton visited the location of Peter O'Connor's photo while researching the Loch Ness Monster for his September 1960 article in The New Scientist, he found three polythene bags, a ring of stone tied together with strings, and a stick fashioned to look like Nessie's head resting on the shore. Some hoaxes, such as the fake Nessie body from 1972 that turned out to be a dead elephant seal, were covered widely in the press, but were debunked so quickly that they never made enough of an impact. Others, such as the 1977 photo, known as the Loch Ness Muppet photo, are so obviously fake that nobody takes them seriously to begin with. After Boyd and Martin's bombshell revelation about the surgeon's photograph, the makers of the 1994 Discovery Communications documentary, Loch Ness Discovered, analyzed the photo and found that the object photographed in the picture was most likely only two to three feet long. 
far smaller than the 20 to 30 feet Nessie is rumored to be. The photo was undoubtedly a hoax. However, some Loch Ness Monster believers questioned the veracity of Sperling's confession. They found it odd that Marmaduke Weatherall never revealed that the photo was a fake and questioned Boyd and Martin's motive for waiting until the 60th anniversary of the surgeon's photo to reveal Sperling's story. Nevertheless, it is now widely accepted in the Loch Ness Monster community that the surgeon's photo is a fake. But this revelation does not seem to have diminished people's enthusiasm for looking for the Loch Ness Monster. Even Alistair Boyd continues to believe in Nessie's existence. Although the surgeon's photo was a trick, he cannot shake the memory of seeing the mysterious creature on Loch Ness's surface in 1979 that he believes to be Nessie. For believers such as Alistair Boyd, hoaxes are not a deterrent for their belief in Nessie. No matter how many people create fake images or films, they can rely on their own stories or more reliable eyewitness accounts as justification for their belief. And they're still looking. We'll return to our story in just a moment from the Parcast Network. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. And now let's continue our story. This enthusiasm for finding the Loch Ness Monster has carried into the 21st century. Robert Rines, who conducted the Academy of Applied Science expeditions in the 1970s, mounted two more searches in 2001 and 2008. In the first expedition, Rines videotaped a large, V-shaped wake crossing the loch, despite the water being completely calm. He also filmed an object on the bottom of the lock that appeared to be some sort of carcass, along with marine clamshells and a fungus-like organism that isn't found in freshwater locks. These discoveries led Rhines to believe there may be some sort of connection between Loch Ness and the sea. Although there was no recorded path between Loch Ness and the ocean, Rhines believed it could possibly exist. After Rhines' 2001 expedition, a lack of major sonar readings and fewer eyewitness accounts made him concerned that something had happened to Nessie. Two years later, the BBC sponsored another search of Loch Ness that used 600 sonar beams and satellite tracking that would allow scientists to detect an object as small as a buoy at high resolution. The excursion, which aired on BBC One as Searching for the Loch Ness Monster, was ultimately fruitless and the scientists involved said this search proved to them that the Loch Ness Monster was nothing more than a myth. But Robert Rhines wasn't so sure. While the BBC's scientists believed their lack of evidence proved that the monster wasn't real, Rhines came to believe that perhaps global warming had caused it to go extinct. He mounted another search in 2008 in order to search the loch's floor for carcasses, but didn't find anything. While Robert Rhines believed that the Loch Ness Monster may be extinct, 
His fellow monster hunting enthusiasts don't share that belief. In 2011, a tourist named David Elder took a nearly five-minute video of a mysterious wave on the loch's otherwise placid waters. Moving across the loch in a lateral motion, it's possible the wave was caused by a gust of wind, but Elder was convinced the water was displaced by a 15-foot or so creature just under the surface. On the heels of David Elder's video, Loch Ness tour boat captain George Edwards provided an extremely clear photo of what seemed to be the Loch Ness monster in March 2012. The photo shows a large hump traveling across the water near Urquhart Castle on the edge of Loch Ness. Edwards, who spends about 60 hours every week taking tourists around Loch Ness on his boat Nessie Hunter 4, said he saw the mysterious hump as he was taking his boat back to the dock on a solo trip. The hump moved slowly along the surface for five to ten minutes before it sank quietly back into the water. This reported behavior is much more in line with the typical behavior of an aquatic animal. Recall that one of the reasons Maurice Burton was skeptical of many Nessie sightings in his 1960 article was that people said the creature they saw was moving extremely quickly and caused a great deal of turbulence. This contrasts with Edward's report that the creature he saw moved slowly and stealthily. The photo was hailed as perhaps the clearest photographic evidence yet that Nessie was real. Steve Feltham, a local of the area who had spent 22 years hunting the Loch Ness Monster, was convinced that the photo was of the creature he had dedicated so much of his life to finding. This photo turned out to be yet another hoax. The truth came out on February 13, 2014, when Steve Coles, who had led the team for the 2011 National Geographic special, The Truth Behind the Loch Ness Monster, was asked if he had seen Edward's photo. To Cole's surprise, he had not, which was odd, since he had used Edward's boat while filming the special. Cole's already harbored suspicions about Edward's. After his team wrapped filming their special, they had a retired Scotland Yard policeman administer polygraph lie detector tests on eyewitnesses who claimed they'd seen the Loch Ness Monster. They all passed, except for Edwards. It seems Edwards had good reason to not show Culls the photo. When he finally saw it, Culls immediately recognized the hump shown in Edwards' picture as a fiberglass prop hump that the documentary had used for recreations of past sightings. The revelation that the photo was a hoax caused an uproar in the Loch Ness monster hunting community. When questioned by Lizzie Edmonds of, once again, the Daily Mail in May 2013, Edwards claimed he was only having a bit of fun. He even cited the surgeon's photograph as evidence that the Loch Ness monster legend thrived off of hoaxes. Edwards made a dubious claim that it was widely known that his picture was a fake. But regardless, the damage was done. An article by Jenny Gross of the Wall Street Journal in October 2013 chronicled a feud between two tourism centers on Loch Ness, Nessieland and the Loch Ness Center and Exhibition. Nessieland, where Edwards' company operates from, takes a looser approach to the Loch Ness Monster encouraging tourists with colorful stories and eyewitness accounts, while the Loch Ness Center 
has a more skeptical view, informing tourists of the sobering fact that Nessie might not actually be real. After the revelation that it was a hoax, Edward's photo became the focus of a tug-of-war between Nessieland and the Loch Ness Center. Edwards and others at Nessieland, who sold his photo on postcards after giving tours, felt there was nothing wrong with adding fuel to the Loch Ness Monster legend if it meant bringing in more tourism dollars. On the other side, officials at the Loch Ness Institute and Destination Loch Ness felt a responsibility to inform tourists of the facts and believed the Scottish Highlands could be a viable tourism destination even if people didn't believe in Nessie. There has been this kind of feeling that it's all about uh, the monster, but the area not only is it of outstanding natural beauty, it has a rich social cultural heritage. The debate over the propriety of Edward's photo and how Nessie tourism should be handled escalated to the Drumnadrocket Chamber of Commerce, which oversees the funds from Loch Ness. After being scolded by members of the Loch Ness Center, such as marine biologist Adrian Shine and author Tony Harmsworth, Edwards lodged an official complaint with the Chamber of Commerce as he felt their attacks threatened his business. He blamed the Loch Ness Center for taking money away from the area with its skeptical approach to Nessie. Tony Harmsworth, who wrote the book Loch Ness Monster, Nessie and Me, operates a Loch Ness Monster tour and also serves as the editor for the Drumna Drocket Chamber of Commerce's website, launched a scathing rebuttal. He felt Edwards treated tourists like gullible fools and left them with, quote, their heads full of garbage. Edwards should not have to resort to fakery to keep his customers entertained, end quote. Adrian Schein also offered his support to Harmsworth's letter. Alas, not everybody agreed with Harmsworth and Schein. The Chamber of Commerce made Harmsworth remove his letter from its website, along with any other material disparaging Edwards. In turn, some members of the Chamber of Commerce, as well as the Loch Ness Center, resigned in support of Harmsworth and Shine. The hand-wringing of these two institutions over the best way to approach the Loch Ness Monster goes to show how important Nessie is to the local economy. With technology rapidly improving, it is becoming easier than ever to manufacture hoaxes and to disprove them. On the other hand, Technology also offers the best chance of discovering concrete proof of Nessie's existence. On April 19, 2014, a satellite image from Apple Maps seemingly showed a large creature around 30 feet long swimming just below the lock's surface. While it could have been the wake of a boat that was lost through low contrast or image stitching, or ripples caused by seals or floating wood, the photo offers the tantalizing possibility that as technology improves, so do the chances of discovering a creature lurking in the depths of Loch Ness. In 2015, Google added a feature to the street view of its Maps feature that allows users to explore both above and below Loch Ness's surface. In collaboration with the Catlin Seaview Survey, Google attached a camera to a boat that allowed it to extensively map the lock. While this latest development hasn't yielded any concrete proof, Nessie sightings continue to pour in. As of 2016, there's a survey being conducted by a Norwegian company called Kongsberg Maritime in conjunction with the Loch Ness Project. 
A new survey of the famous Highlands Lake has been using a marine robot to study its depths for any sign of the fabled monster, which has helped attract thousands of visitors to the region. And sure enough, the robot found something. But very disappointingly, the 30-foot object's not the fabled Loch Ness Monster, but a prop left over from a 1970s movie. Billy Wilder's The Private Life of Sherlock Holmes. The movie puts the great detective on the trail of the monster, which, the story goes, turns out to be a disguised submarine, a model of the submarine monster sank during production to the bottom of the 750-foot deep lake. Charles de la Desma, London. As the robot combs the depths of Loch Ness, the hope is that new discoveries about the loch will emerge, not just false alarms. 2017 saw eight official sightings logged, more than any other year this century, including a photo of a strange fin taken by Dr. Joe Knight of Lancaster University. The question is, if Nessie is indeed real, what could this creature be? It seems the most popular theory is that the Loch Ness Monster is a member of the plesiosaur family. Plesiosaurs lived between 215 and 66 million years ago and could reach lengths of anywhere from 15 to 40 feet long. But paleontologists believe plesiosaurs were probably cold-blooded, which means they would need warm waters to survive. They probably wouldn't be able to live in Loch Ness with its average temperature of only 42 degrees Fahrenheit. In the event that the Loch Ness monster was a warm-blooded plesiosaur, it would probably require more food than Loch Ness is able to supply it with. The plesiosaur's physiology also makes it unlikely that it could be what eyewitnesses have described. The way a plesiosaur's neck is structured it has a lot of flexibility, but not a lot of strength. If Nessie was a plesiosaur, it wouldn't be able to lift its neck out of the water in the swan-like fashion people have said it does. There's also a practical matter of dates. Plesiosaurs went extinct many millions of years ago. Nessie experts have theorized that perhaps plesiosaurs were able to survive widespread extinction in Loch Ness. The only problem is that Loch Ness has only existed in its current state for 10,000 years. Before then, it was frozen during a 20,000-year ice age. Ardent believers of the plesiosaur theory, such as Tim Dinsdale, Peter Scott, and Roy Mackle, have proposed that Nessie is an animal that evolved from a plesiosaur, or a similar-looking creature that gained its characteristics through convergent evolution. Robert Rines has postulated that the horns that some eyewitnesses have seen on the Loch Ness Monster's head are actually breathing tubes that allow it to breathe without having to lift its head above the surface. There are others who believe that there are undiscovered passages deep in Loch Ness that lead to the sea, where the Loch Ness Monster could have come through after the last ice age and can now leave through to get the food necessary for survival. A more recent theory was proposed in 2013 by Jeremy Wade, the host of the television series River Monsters. In a special episode dedicated to searching for the Loch Ness Monster, Wade came to the conclusion that Nessie could be a Greenland shark. The Greenland shark can reach up to 20 feet in length and is known to inhabit the North Atlantic Ocean around Canada, Greenland, Iceland, Norway, and potentially Scotland, all areas where there have been sightings of mysterious lake monsters. 
While a Greenland shark has never been seen in fresh water, biologist Bruce Wright claims it could survive in fresh water and could probably hunt the salmon and other fish in Loch Ness. Lastly, Steve Feltham theorized in 2015 that the Loch Ness monster could be an abnormally large specimen of Wells catfish, which can reach up to nine feet long. Although there is no record of Wells catfish living in Loch Ness or any nearby bodies of water, fishing enthusiasts have been known to illegally introduce them into other lakes. Wells catfish can live up to a hundred years in the right conditions, and if one had been put into Loch Ness in the 1930s, it could explain many of the Nessie sightings that have happened over the years. And that brings us to the end of our Nessie theories. All things considered, is there any chance that the Loch Ness Monster is real? As much as I would love to believe there's a remnant from the age of dinosaurs messing with tourists in the Scottish Islands, I think Maurice Burton hit the nail on the head in 1960 when he pointed out the various explanations of what people might have mistaken as the Loch Ness Monster. Exuberant otters and rotting peat moss might not be as exciting as a plesiosaur, but they're much more likely. I also think Dr. Burton was on the right track in his article. And while I agree that he probably correctly identified the explanations for what people were really seeing in Loch Ness, I also love what he said in the final paragraph of his article. Quote, As I have said, there are monsters in Loch Ness. They may be of several kinds. They may be animal, vegetable, or mineral, or all three. We have no more than started to investigate the problem, and there are sufficiently exciting possibilities to make work on it amusing as well as scientifically profitable. This does not mean that our approach to it need be immoderate nor our claims extravagant." End quote. Like Burton, I'd like to think something we have yet to identify lives in Loch Ness. Like you said, it may not be a plesiosaur, but that doesn't make it any less exciting. Concrete proof of the Loch Ness Monster's existence may never be provided, but it's clear that Nessie will always have a place in people's imagination. And unless anyone can somehow prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that there's nothing out of the ordinary living in Loch Ness, people will continue to flock there with binoculars and cameras, hoping to get indisputable proof of the reclusive Nessie's existence. Who knows? Maybe it'll be you. Thanks for listening to Unexplained Mysteries. This concludes our investigation into the Loch Ness Monster. Tune in next week for another exciting mystery that defies easy explanation. Don't forget to subscribe to Unexplained Mysteries on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, Spotify, or any other podcast directory. If you like what you hear, leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. And remember, never take we don't know for an answer. Unexplained Mysteries was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Paul Liebeskind, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Unexplained Mysteries is written by Alex Benedin 
and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. <laughs>